This is Channel 253. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. One, two, two. Interchangeable. White Ladies. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm Hope. I'm Annie. Our essential question today, what role does teacher training play in the health of our schools and the future of the teaching profession? Uh, today's episode is part of a series on teacher diversity and training and just having more honest conversations about what that means in Washington State specifically. Our guest today is a teacher friend of mine uh, from way back in the day, Tamar Krames. Hi, Tamar. Hi, Hope. <laughs> uh, she graduated in 2006 with both Nate and I. And shout out Travis Davio, who doesn't listen to the show, but that's okay. MIT grad. Uh, you have an endorsement in art and ELL. Is that correct? Correct. And you taught in that, those fields for a while. Yep. How many years? Ten years. Ten years. So long. Um, she also worked for OSPI and is currently adjunct faculty for the Master's in Teaching program at the Evergreen State College. Welcome to the show. Thank you for Welcome. having me. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your journey into teaching? Um, what started? Why did you want to become a teacher? How did you get started in teaching? Well, it all started when I was three years old. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I always wanted to teach in the arts in a multilingual and multicultural school. Um, I grew up in a big city in San Francisco and um, was always in multicultural, multilingual communities. And I'm first generation on one side of my family and grew up with mom who um, had never navigated the school mm. system before. So I just always wanted to work in a dynamic, um, diverse setting. Um, and I, I always wanted to work in the arts because I felt um, really lucky to have been exposed to lots of ways of thinking and expressing myself mm. um, and a lot of different kinds of voices and different um, mediums. And I just wanted to give back. And um, in terms of equity, I would say I just think everybody should be exposed and have lots of mediums to express themselves and find their voice through. Um, I started teaching ELL, um, which was awesome because I loved working with multilingual, I still do, um, with multilingual youth and families. Um, but I have to say it was kind of depressing because I think that there's there for a lot of those students, there's so much emphasis on getting through the system and mm -hmm. the language and literacy to get through the system that creative expression and sort of dynamic mm -hmm. voice and mediums are often not a part of that journey for them. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in my teaching career, I was always trying to find ways to bridge sort of that gap of, um, yes, learning the language of school and providing opportunities, opening up opportunities. Um, and also making sure we do it in creative, engaging, mm -hmm. um, and relevant ways. Mm. Yeah. So how do you feel like your arts background gave you, I don't know, an edge or just something different to bring into working with English language learners? So when we say ELL, just for our audience who are not educators, sorry, education speak, English <laughs> language, well, I can't even say English language learners. 
Um, yeah, I would say, one, I'm an artist, I'm a painter, um, and I draw all the time. I also make short films. Um, but I will say that my background, sort of, while growing, being born and raised in San Francisco, is not just an art making for art's sake, but community mm. activist art making mm. and sort of place-based, like, where are we? What's happening here? What do we have to say about it? And I had a lot of models for how to do that. Mm. Um, And so when I started teaching, it just seemed sort of a no-brainer to tap into the community wealth of where I I was, Um, including students and their parents and their stories, their lineages, um, their languages. So I would say that arts provides a way, like an entry point Mm. that isn't... um, as heavily assessed that mm. folks, especially now with digital medium, mm. that folks can have a voice and can share their stories and their family stories um, and things they care about. Mm. And so I think it was just natural to me to sort of incorporate that and never teach language at the expense mm. of like um, meaningful creative dialogue and expression. Yeah. Mm. Can you talk more about what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, let me think about what I just said. Um, I just yeah. think about the teaching it at the expense of language. Yeah, I think that the reality, so in speaking ELL specific, so with um, multilingual students, you know, there's all the research, like teachers get trained in the research that it takes five to seven years to reach academic native-like proficiency in a second language. And that's even, I think, quite a generous number, five to seven years, because that mm. assumes literacy in the first language. So mm. for many students, it's like an epic process to be able to succeed mm. by our academic English measures in the system is a huge, huge mountain to climb mm-hmm. for families and for students. And so what feedback are they getting in the meantime? And how are they interacting with each other and the community in the Mm. meantime? And are they just sort of in a remedial situation focusing on subject verb agreement? Or are they also, are they being, um, I don't know, are their voices a part of the bigger dialogue? Mm. Um, So if not through like academic writing, I feel like we need to ask like, what are the avenues for inviting that dialogue? Um, And, to me, that's a lot of community outreach and a lot of mm-hmm. really creative ways of sharing stories, mm-hmm. um, which I've done just some concrete examples. Could be digital storytelling, mm-hmm. could be mm-hmm. translanguaging where people can present their ideas um, in not only English and not only their home languages, but combination of mm-hmm. the two or maybe five because cool. many come in with mm-hmm. lots of layers of language um, and just to celebrate the beauty and complexity of that, um, while also being like, the, the system measures you in this one way, so mm. we're going to build that up. But not, that's what I mean, not at the expense of celebrating all the layers that mm-hmm. are happening in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Do you think that um, when you are engaging in art making with ELL students, do you feel like that sort of transcends the because I know that there's this this the art can transcend like language barrier. Do you feel like that opens up lines of communication with families and students when you're able to make art with ELL students or to does that open up communication in new ways? Or? Yes, absolutely. And I would say like like to just expand the notion of art. It's not necessarily like we're all making paintings. Like yeah. sometimes it's cooking. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. folk mm-hmm. dancing. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's making little mini films about folk dancing. Mm-hmm. Like it's not 
necessarily that, oh, you know, a lot of students don't really care about mm-hmm. art making as like a skill-based thing. So I guess more about like a cultural exchange and a, mm-hmm. co- a way to communicate who we are and where we're coming from. So sometimes yeah. for sure, like we would make a lot of zines and self-portraits and, you know, they would write mm-hmm. poetry in different languages. So there's a, there were a lot of different ways, but sometimes it was honestly like we went, once made a cooking show. That was probably the most successful <laughs> thing awesome. mm-hmm. I did with ELL's yeah. families and students because they just were like, we know how to cook, but the, we, we got to choose the music and mm-hmm. make the videos and like present it and everybody was super proud. But I would, I would include that, I guess, in a community arts mm-hmm sort of bucket even though it's mm-hmm. not we didn't have like charcoal and right you know. <laughs> yeah. pastels You're like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm wondering about because when students are in the classroom and they see teachers who look like them that experience of education changes so what is the what's the importance what's the gravity what's the kind of you know what's the urgency of having a diverse teaching force Yeah, Um, I just I guess I would start by saying um, that there are so many ways to address representation um, Mm. with the teaching force that we have. Um, So I just want to make sure, like in the books that we choose and the artwork that we post Mm -hmm. on our See, Think, Wonder or whatever. So there's like just so many ways that we can broaden representation in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, for sure, like. I would say I can just speak personally Mm -hmm. that um, just growing up with an immigrant mom whose English English was is her second language, who also never graduated from high school, Mm -hmm. um, that there's a knowing what it takes to navigate. um, And I was born in the United States, so that's totally different than than navigating like citizenship status and all of that. Mm -hmm. But for me, like, I just have a real sensitivity to, like, the many layers of responsibility involved. And I would say that was a huge asset with Mm -hmm. working with students, um, immigrant students, and just, like, also um, a lot of spaciousness and compassion for, Mm -hmm. like, the time it takes Mm -hmm. to do that and how hard it is for for kids. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and so I think that's one thing. Also, language diversity. I think Mm -hmm. sometimes we think about... Um, race and racial diversity. Um, but I also just want to add a layer of like the way that we um, communicate English supr- supremacy mm. in our schools of like, Talk about it. <laughs> yeah, like that, that there's one way to be smart, sound smart, write mm-hmm. smart, and that um, we need to bring in more models of like, man, there are, mm-hmm. there are so many people who speak like seven languages who right. are so smart and we don't bring way them smarter in. Than yeah, way smarter, yeah. way yeah. smarter. And there's so yeah. much research and they like yeah. they like grow older smarter and like yeah. die smarter. And <laughs> yeah. really like yeah, we but we don't necessarily show show that in the professionalism of our mm-hmm. field. Like we don't have a lot of multilingual mm-hmm. teachers yeah. and um we don't necessarily bring in community members mm. that have accents or that are translanguaging or whatever. And like, mm-hmm. I think we're starting to do that a little bit with literature, but it's like slow moving. So I think that that's a big part of representation mm-hmm. for ELL students, along with, I mean, of course, ideally we'd have a teaching force that somewhat mirrors the diversity of the mm-hmm. students in front of us would be ideal. And we have a long ways to go, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. a long, long ways mm-hmm. to go. I'm really yeah. g- glad you 
kind of hinted at the the when we say like teacher diversity, I think it's really it's one it's kind of being thrown around quite a bit. Even mm-hmm. though that's actually been a conversation that I think a lot of teachers of color and those and different communities have had, mm-hmm. but like finally it seems to be hitting the news in a different kind of way mm-hmm. and some like more um, official reports and like white people talking about it. Yeah. Um, sadly, but. I think when the people use that word to diversity, they're really just trying mm-hmm. to say race. Yeah. And to your point, like, are we also talking about like other kinds of um, diversity, right? Yeah. Linguistic diversity. What are some other places that you think we need to expand our sense of diversity when it comes to education or teachers? Yeah, I think there's so much. There's so much. I think it's like um, it's also who who is seen as an expert in Mm. our buildings Mm. like it's because it's Mm. not just the teachers so how do we elevate our community members and Mm. just people who are here already doing work and have been doing such important work in the community regardless of where you are like those people are everywhere Mm. and they're all ages and they have all kinds of different jobs but we don't tend to elevate them as experts in our community in Mm. the school Um, so I think that's a huge part of it and I just think that, like, predominantly, you know, it's obviously a predominantly white female teaching force, yeah. clearly, given the name mm. of your podcast. Um, <laughs> but I also think that sometimes I, we just have a lot of work to do. So I think sometimes mm. we're like, diversify the teaching force. And I'm like, why would they want to stay? Like, what, yes. what work yeah, do we have? Yeah. Why, mm. why would they want to yep. come and why would they want to stay? And what work do we have to do while we're saying, like, mm-hmm. hire more teachers of color? Like, we also have to be doing some really deep work mm-hmm. so that that makes any sense. Like, because right now I think it's not, it's just not always <coughs> a welcoming space mm-hmm. um, or a fun space mm-hmm. um, for a lot of different kinds of people. Yeah. Well, there are layers there, too. Like, I know that I've been really fortunate this year to meet several other queer teachers who are also people of color that they didn't. The you know the the multi multiple layers of feeling outside of the school system right like um, not being able to connect maybe with coworkers because um, there there was no um, kind of shared history in terms of like racial identity or uh, queer identity and so it it kind of piles on right like and like you said why stay right if you don't feel like you're at home in a building i mean i there's a great book and i can never remember the author it's actually multiple authors that contributed to it but it's called one teacher in 10 and it's about mm-hmm. queer educators and mm-hmm. there are a lot of stories in there about like you know what why stay if i'm you know if, if i'm going to continually be hurt by my job yeah. <laughs> like personally and professionally I just, yeah and when we say bring people in like what are we doing before we bring yeah. people yes. in yeah. so right. that what kind of training is yeah. happening yeah. what kind of awareness yeah I was just reading an uh, article on social media somewhere um, and it was a queer teacher who was talking about how she was getting all these like accolades for the work that she was doing in her classroom and then directly across from her was a really conservative Christian and that person would like glare at her every day <laughs> and she's like it's so bizarre to like be in this place where you're like honored on one level and then just like dehumanized and berated on another level mm-hmm. and that you know we use microaggression but it, honestly I'm like it's an aggression mm-hmm. in that kind of space that happens do you thinking about your own journey through teacher um, ed programs and just coming to this place where you're at today um, would you mind talking about any of those experiences I don't know if they're far enough a remove that you can talk like about like feeling isolated yeah just think about some of those things that are pretty typical or do you think your experience was different than um, other folks? I mean I guess I would start by saying like I'm I'm a multiracial mm-hmm. um, also multinational come from a multinational family so it's like a mix and mm-hmm. and in terms of like 
um, presentation, I experience a ton of white privilege. So I just want to start by saying mm-hmm. that um, before I get into the layers of complexity yeah. around my identity. Um, so I always kind of lead with that because that's predominantly my experience as a teacher. I mm-hmm. think I kind of fit right into like the assumption mm-hmm. that you're like a white middle class teacher that mm-hmm. speaks English and is going to get married and change your name to Mrs. Blah, blah, blah. Like there's the assumption mm-hmm. that I think that there's nothing about me. I'm like a little bit to the side of like, mm-hmm. I think you will fit into that mold. But like, mm-hmm. so anyway, um, I don't fit into that mold. But anyway, I don't, <laughs> I don't always experience a lot of, yeah. it's like people just are more comfortable <laughs> letting me just, letting me fit right in, if that makes sense. Like assuming your whiteness and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And straightness and a bunch of yeah. other things. But um, but I would say internally, uh, I would say there's a lot of invisibility and erasure um, that happens culturally for me as a teacher. Um, I was really shocked just coming from the Bay Area. I honestly thought everybody was... Jewish and queer growing up in San Francisco. Like, I just thought that's how everybody was. That's just, like, reality, right? I, I yeah. just, like, that was my yeah. experience. So yeah. I came to Washington, and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that is not true over here. And, you know, and I, I should say I am I am Jewish, but I'm also Middle Eastern, mm-hmm. Iraqi Jewish, um, and American. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar with conflict. Um, but, yeah, I would say one thing that surprised me was like assumed Christianity for sure mm-hmm. and just sort of mm-hmm. the the lack of like awareness and celebration of both some of my students who would be like celebrating Ramadan but also me mm-hmm. like I never celebrated Christmas and so it just the assumption like we all do this together as one big happy family mm-hmm. was surprising to me because I did not grow up that way with that mm-hmm. lack of light bulbs on like come on that's like, a really good descriptor like, like a lack of light bulbs yeah, turned like, on like, like hey. come on season's greetings happened like a hundred years ago like, yeah. <laughs> like what? really what's happening yeah um, so that for sure but also um, I don't know. I would say as like an ELL advocate and advocate for like multilingual and multinational um, families. Mm. Um, honestly, I would say that in the the world to me of people who really do are involved in that ad- advocacy work at the state level, it's almost all teachers of color. Mm. And it's almost all folks who have been impacted by mm. immigrant, like their parents were immigrants or yeah. they're immigrants or they're multilingual themselves. And it's kind of depressing, like, mm. where are all the white teachers in this, like, advocacy, like, special committee? It's weird. Um, so that's interesting. So why did you feel like, where are the, all the white teachers? Why did I feel that yeah, way? Yeah, can you unpack that a little bit? I don't know if everyone who's listening will is tracking the same so, way. So, like, when you, if you imagine being in a room of, like, 200 teachers and everybody's like, pick the, hot, the topic you want to, like— do a PD on or whatever that mm-hmm. typically the people who would be like, I'm going to talk about, you know, I want to dive deep into like what it means to what best practice means for ELL families and students. It tends to be teachers of color who end up in that group mm-hmm. and it tends to be Latinx teachers and multilingual teachers and like some mixed mixed bags like myself. But that's what I mean is like it doesn't tend to be um, white teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I would say tends to be specialists and not Mm. content teachers, which is surprising Mm. to me. Um, Mm. So I would say, like, thinking about who goes to that Mm. table, even though, like, statistically, when we talk about the opportunity gap, like, our ELL students, they're, they're, like, you know, statistically not meeting standards Mm. as the state would like them to. So it's Mm. interesting that that work 
kind of falls on the shoulders. I think not only there are for sure amazing white teachers who advocate for ELL students, mm-hmm. but um, like you all, well, for hope for sure. Like I've we worked try. a lot with hope. Um, uh, a lot of work to be done. And I, yeah. yeah. Um, well, well, and it's interesting thing about like the national statistics of like 18% of teachers across the country are teachers of color. But then if they're lifting that burden in when it comes to like working mm-hmm. with um, English language learners, right? And yeah. so like that disproportionality that's there. Yeah. And then also I would venture to say like to speak for all white people. <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> if I were to venture to say like also like a lot of white people. N- need that work in a different kind of way and need some of those mm-hmm. cultural competency training that work, um, or I guess I should say cultural relevancy training uh, in a different kind of capacity. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. that I, I was kind of wrestling with this, actually thinking about our, our discussion today, like thinking about the, the, the any kind of assumption makes an ass out of you and me, um, but <laughs> get it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, bad, bad pun day. Good one. But like thinking about how we also can't assume that like, just because you fit one like box you're checking off doesn't mean you understand this other box or this other experience over here. Yeah. At mm-hmm. the same time, like it's interesting to me that that's teachers of colors that it really, are willing to come to the table. It also reminds me of our recent conversations about how the work of 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 undoing white supremacy is a huge that needs to be cooperative in society, but it needs a burden that needs to be on white folks mm-hmm. to fix it, and it's like. Like if people aren't if white people aren't volunteering to do that work or come to the table, then that's that's disappointing. And also like and um, oh, is this shame bell time? Yeah, hey. I think you should do it um, because that's it's on white folks, white teachers to see the see their def- deficits and work on them. Right. And I feel like that's it's so hard, especially like with the pace of the work. Sometimes you think about. Um, when you have time to be self-reflective and do that, but it needs to happen. Like it's cr- it's crucial, and it's not happening, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So much to say. <laughs> Go for it if you want. So, what did your work look like? Um, you worked for OSBI for a few years. Yeah, I was there for three years. Okay. Yeah. Um, awesome. So let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back and talk. I want to hear about all that. about it. We'd like to take a quick moment to thank Workforce Central for sponsoring Channel 253. Our economy has been heating up and jobs are coming to our region, but in Tacoma and Pierce County, we still have two big problems. One, a lot of our workers are getting on I-5 and heading north to work in Seattle. Yeesh. Two, many of our residents don't know how to get trained for the jobs that are open in Pierce County. This is where Workforce Central comes in. Workforce Central wants to help you find a job here. Here. Workforce Central partners with Pierce County businesses, local governments, nonprofits, organized labor, and schools to get our workforce prepared for living wage jobs in our area. If you need training to help you get a better job or need to advance your skills to land a better job, well, Workforce in Tacoma can actually help. All you have to do is call 253-593-7300. That's 253-593-7300. Right now, there's a demand for workers in industries like healthcare, construction, transportation, and advanced manufacturing. Workforce Central helps get Pierce County residents trained up for those jobs. And Workforce Central is making it easier than ever to find those jobs. Just head on over to workforce-central.org to search every job listing in Pierce County, all in the same place. That's every job. So put your talents to work, ditch your commute, and love your lifestyle. Thanks, Workforce Central, for your support of Channel 253. And we're back. We're so back. Um, what kind of work did you do at the state level, and how fulfilling or frustrating was it? 
Uh, so I worked as an instructional coach with an emphasis on language, literacy, and culturally responsive teaching um, across the state of Washington in the state's lowest performing schools. Um, and there's a whole algorithm for that um, that's always changing. But, <clears throat> um, yeah, so I... I traveled all over the place, which mm. was for me, I can start by saying selfishly, I have no regrets. I learned so much mm. by traveling across the state and trying to understand what the work looks like in a variety of communities. And a lot of them were communities I had no experience mm. with. So I'm mm. so grateful. Like I worked on two reservations and got to collaborate with um, indigenous and tribal educators. Mm. I got to um, work east of the mountains and migrant communities, like schools that are like in the apple orchards. And, you know, I'm a city girl. So for me, I got to work in in like rural um, high poverty schools that were predominantly white, which is like really outside my mm -hmm. cultural framework um, to talk about language and literacy. So I just learned a, a huge amount. As far as impact, I'm not so sure, because mm -hmm. I, I think the reason I left ultimately is there wasn't the kind of... Um, persistence of relationships mm -hmm. for me to feel like change was possible. I think people probably learned a few things by meeting someone like me and thinking with me and like unit planning alongside me and like the things I think about. But um, I just so much of change is through relationships. And so sometimes mm -hmm. I would only get I'd That's often true. get like 10 days a year in a school. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like it wasn't enough. And I have two little kids and I was on I was in a lot of holiday inns, mm -hmm. and I just was like, I need to be home with my family. But mm -hmm. um, I learned a ton. I worked with great people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thinking about that experience, um, can you talk specifically about, like, what are some things that you've seen that were that you feel like people are moving in the right direction when it comes to doing um, culturally respon responsive practices or, like, meeting the needs of their students in the state? Is there, like, um, a good example of that? For sure. Um, yeah, I think schools are trying a lot of different things. I would say that when it feels like really hopeful to me is when schools really stick with a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and But we're so bad at that. We're really good. I don't know about it with like people from other professions. Like, here, read this book for a year and then yeah. like, cool story, bro. And then we're done with it all of a sudden. Yeah. yeah. Or like, yeah. let's do this one thing for two years and then like, ah, we don't really like that. So like, we're going to yeah. change in the third year. It's like, yeah. yeah, wait, you got to wait it out. Like a lot of the research shows what? You got to wait like two, three totally. years to see the fruits yeah. of something. And then yeah. you do small tweaks. Yeah. You don't dramatically That's right. find a new book to... Yeah then read and try to do. Yeah, yeah, but something, you know, that I learned a lot about in working in, in the states, I mean, really, it's it's the states like high poverty yeah. schools, um, is that there's just a tremendous amount of turnover yeah. at every level, mm -hmm. staff and leadership, so that just by nature of that, um, you know, they're high stress schools mm -hmm. usually, and they're like mm -hmm. under the state's eye, and then you have all this turnover, and it's, you know, it's really, really hard yeah. to make change. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say if I had to, like, boil it down, I would say where I felt the most hope was in community-based, mm. um, like, implementation of ideas that involved parents, that involved mm. community and wasn't just separate. And that is something that is hard to build from the outside, like mm -hmm. driving to Wenatchee and trying to build that from Olympia. Mm. But mm -hmm. um, if I could find people to collaborate with in the mm -hmm. community and have, like, just a lot of points of connection is where that work comes to life. Um, 
yeah, I think the ideas are out there. And then a lot of it is honestly in the classroom and teaching together so mm. so that it's not just ideas, but being like, what does mm-hmm. that actually look like with these 27 students, mm-hmm. like these particular 27 mm-hmm. students and me, mm-hmm. this particular teacher, like in this school with this particular curriculum, like what does that look like? And that has to happen in the classroom yeah. and with a lot mm-hmm. of collaborative planning time. Mm-hmm. Yep. So you are now um, teaching teachers about teaching yeah, my nine-year-old says, my mom's a teacher teaching teachers teaching. Does she actually say <laughs> She that? says that. That's when people really ask, what does your mom do? It's, like, really funny. That's really I love cute. It. So how does it feel um, being back at Evergreen um, and doing this work? What made you decide to get involved in this, um, to shift to this? I mean, honestly, after working with OSPI, like, while I was in OSPI, I had a one-year-old mm-hmm. as I was traveling around, mm-hmm. and I just decided I needed to, to do something local. And being a person that's interested in multilingual, mm. like culturally responsive work, like Olympia is really white yeah. and there's not a lot of place for someone like me. Honestly, mm. like I don't really know how to do my work in a place mm. like Olympia. Um, <coughs> and so I was just looking for a way to not be on the road and be able to like pick up my kids and whatever. Mm-hmm. So, um, at first I got invited to just teach a series of workshops at Evergreen and I was like, I'll try that. And I was also doing contracting work with OSPI. Mm. Um, and I liked it. It's, um, I'm well suited for it. I like reading hard mm. and like juicy texts with people mm-hmm. and talking about them. Um, I feel really grateful to still be able to do that. Um, and I like mentoring new teachers a lot, especially um, through student teaching and in the field. Like I, mm. I love mentoring new teachers. Um, yeah. So now I, right now I'm part-time. I, um, support student teachers, supervise them. I facilitate seminar. I teach classes. Like I I taught a class called language literacy and culture. Mm. I mean, how fun is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's one nice thing about Evergreen is that there's flexibility built in to how things are, are taught there. Do you find that that's been um, – do you think you could teach the way that you want to in another setting or is Evergreen kind of unique in in how you can teach? Um, I can't speak for Evergreen because I've never – I didn't go to undergrad there and I don't really – MIT, the Master in Teaching mm-hmm. program, is kind of an island of its own. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. But I will say as far as teach teacher prep, teacher education, I think that – that program just gives a lot of space for, like, the why and the purpose of the work we do mm-hmm. um, and kind of offers tools of the how to do it, but not that many. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's just the idea that um, stick with the why and be mm-hmm. really clear about it mm-hmm. um, and gain tools along the way. But I think that's a powerful way to start teaching. Mm-hmm. At least it was for me. Mm-hmm. But it's hard. It's mm-hmm. hard for folks who are like, just give me the tools. Yeah. I want to like, just show me how to make a seating chart. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. that's one of the things I actually really loved about the program is that why piece, right? So like it's not just like make a seating chart. It's like, well why are you putting certain kids with certain kids and other kids and being intentional with what you're doing mm-hmm. and how do you leverage relationships and how do you, you know, uh, make sure you have groupings that are like a place where students can hear different points of view and mm-hmm. like have the support, like whether that's language support or cultural right. support or just other kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's thinking a lot about that, like not just making an assignment, but like why are you making this assignment? Why are kids doing it? What is it going to help them do mm-hmm. in the world and in learning and in mm-hmm. skill sets? And um, it's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of funny because it's, it's abstract, but also like yeah, really, really a helpful. A little jealous. 
<laughs> be just, jealous. Just a little bit. Just a little. Uh, you had a really good question about training and yeah. the past versus now. You want to ask that? Well, I was wondering about, so when you look at like racial equity in teacher training programs now, being on the inside of that as an educator of educators, <laughs> educating people, mm-hmm. um, how has that changed since you went through you got you went through the MIT program also yeah, with hope 2004 yes. to That's 2006 awesome. I love Very it great I still remember a lesson that you did where it was you I think it was like because we all did interdisciplinary like teamwork yeah. projects because it's evergreen um, and I remember when we're like the arts teachers because that's how I knew them at the time <laughs> um, so basic um, we, you had us like lay down on pieces of paper and sketch our bodies out and then we had to like do some drawings and I don't remember what the point was but I remember like sketching out somebody yeah. else and then laying on paper and then doing this teamwork activity what do you mean activity. you don't remember what the point I remember was the learning was, I feel like it was about identity <laughs> Actually, was I'm it? Sure, I'm sure. I don't remember. <laughs> Do you I'm remember? Because you were like, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was awesome. Yeah. That's one of the things I remember about it. <laughs> I guess this question kind of my question about racial equity kind of came up because I, when I was at Western in the MIT program, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of talk about racial equity, but it was also kind of in that. I feel like it was kind of in a time when there was a lot of there were a lot of books coming out that were very white savory and they were that was kind of making it kind of comes in waves right like these these books about you know how to be a, an amazing white teacher in some <laughs> underserved area and and how it's very white savory so like how do you feel like the conversation shifted around racial equity or conversations around diversity since you were in the program to mm-hmm. now or even like when you originally, because you did, did you teach prior to the MIT program? Did you have like taught with your bachelor's degree? And like, how has that changed since your undergrad training and teaching? Yeah, um, I would say it has changed. I mean, right now I would say there's just more like fire in general mm. that we're all in where mm. it, everything's sort of really urgent and people mm. are, there's so much more on the surface I think that it's harder to be complacent with any of this stuff mm-hmm. now yeah. than it was in 2004 or 2006 where you could be like, oh, yeah, racism, that's a thing I've heard of. But be <laughs> yeah. really detached from yeah. it yeah. because it's just exploded. I mean, it's always been exploding and depending on where you grew up. But certainly if you grew up in Olympia, like yeah. you could be mm-hmm. like really cozy about your the level of like discomfort you f- mm. would mm. feel with any anything around equity. Mm. So I'd say that's changed like evergreen, you know, that's if you look at what's been happening there, like mm. there's a lot of explosive stuff and people are in each other's face and in a way I think that's preferable, although it's really uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, um, interesting. So I think that has definitely changed. Mm. There's a lot more um, just like Books and ideas that people are like familiar with, even if they're not reading them, I think because of social media that mm-hmm. that people will be like, you should read Aluo, so you want to talk about race. And someone yeah. else will be like, have you read White Fragility? And it's just sort of more at the fingertips yeah. of people mm-hmm. to um, recommend stuff. And there's a lot more books out there, mm-hmm. um, I think, for people at different entry points into that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'd say that's different um i know that we 
we are trying to do this thing where we have choice books where people do a lot of reflect mm-hmm. reflection on like where they're at, you know, are they like super defensive or are they like, mm-hmm. I've read all these books already. I'm ready for this or for a, um, mm-hmm. you know, pre-service teacher of color. They might not want to write. We read white fragility, you know, mm-hmm. for good reason. So like giving people um, a lot of space for, for reflection and choice. Mm-hmm. I um, love that you're doing that because as one thing that I in my grad cohort, we had you know, the classes where there were a choice over what we read, but a lot of times it was kind of a one-size-fits-all situation, and that was really frustrating, yeah. and I, I'm glad that that's changing. Well, yeah. and I was just thinking about this in the—I was actually going to ask you because—so um, I have a student teacher, and she's a woman of color, and then also there's been recently some, like, panels, some of this stuff happening in the last couple months where really talking about how, okay, so we want teacher diversity and racially, linguistically, in these other ways, but then— um, these teachers or pot- potential candidates get into teacher programs. And while the teacher programs are trying to be more woke or like have some of those conversations, they mm-hmm. also aren't like you mentioned earlier about this idea of like how to retain people in the yeah. programs. Yep. And there's also this like lack of. So, OK, great. You're going to have us mm-hmm. read like to all the teachers who teach in the hood or white folks yeah. who teach in the hood. Yeah. But mm-hmm. then you're like. What does that mean for this person who's totally. a person of color who's going into education? Do they have to read the same book? Should they? Should they not? Like, what about yeah. that tension? What, what do you What do you personally think about that? Not necessarily for Evergreen, but I mean, how do we it's really that? tricky, right? <laughs> because if you look at teacher educators, they're like super predominantly white, yep. and they're super predominantly old, yeah. and many of them have never taught. I mean, mm. just like if you mm. look at the statistics of who's teaching teachers, it's very, very difficult yeah, to true. imagine a space that isn't 100% white-centered. And I, mm. in a college environment, I, they are out there. I have never experienced that. So I think when you've never experienced what that would even feel like mm. to have mm. a space yeah. for at, at a, at, in teacher education that's not white-centered, especially in a place like Olympia, like mm. we're so far from that. I mean, I think there's a lot of ideas that that should be what's happening, but like nobody's ever experienced yeah. it. So if you've never experienced it, how's that? Mm. How are you supposed to facilitate it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that um, there's a long way to go uh, for sure. Um, there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work to do. And there's a lot of people doing it. I mean, there's like the Martinez Fellowship mm-hmm. and there's there's mm-hmm. um, p- ways to connect um, teachers with mentors who are teachers of color yeah. that can speak to not just teaching but navigating the system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's, there's more awareness, I would say, than there was when we were in MIT. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard. I mean, that's a, that's a hard space to like – destabilize and it does need to happen Mm -hmm. I don't know how though if you have any suggestions (laughs) we can talk talk later Um, only because I've heard a few things recently it's funny it's kind of one of those things where you're like teaching culturally responsive teaching to a bunch of teachers let's say in a predominantly white town that have never left that town where you're like if we could Mm -hmm. just take this money and send folks to a different country for a little bit seriously yeah like because they have to be dis- destabilized right. somehow, yeah, and it's not going to happen by reading this book. So I feel the same kind of thing. Or like drinking thing. some bubble tea. You're like, cool. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> you just have to shake it, shake, shake yeah. that kind of bubble up. And so yeah. I see that at the college level. Like, what's going to yeah. shake it up? 
I don't know. So a lot of our listeners um, are peripherally in education, but not necessarily. And so um, if they've made it this far in the episode, (laughs) obviously, (laughs) we appreciate that. Um, But why do you think people outside of like directly impacted by Ed should care about this? Community members. You mentioned a little bit about partnerships. I don't know if that's part of the reason why people all people need to be caring about these issues. Um, I don't know. what What would you say to that? Uh, or maybe all people don't need to care. I don't know. I mean, I think that it's safe to say, like, given where we're at right now, just socially, politically, that, like, cross-cultural dialogue Mm -hmm. is pretty important, that we Mm -hmm. kind of figure out how to navigate that. Um, And I think that education is a huge part of figuring that out. Mm yeah, and also having that be fun because dialogue is doesn't have to be like um, a panel or you know, like mm-hmm. it can be through video and music and conversations and dancing and whatever. There's lots of ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that in many ways, youth know that more than we do. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and that there's a lot to tap into in terms of just talking things out and, understanding different viewpoints so Mm -hmm. i think that's why people should care about like what we value what we tell Mm -hmm. kids we value um and what we tell them to like keep quiet about Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. uh it's kind of a good place to end that part of the conversation uh shall we talk about guilty phases interchangeable white ladies absolutely so in this segment a little bit light hearted uh, in comparison always um, what is something that you feel is like a favorite thing but also maybe you have a little guilt but if you don't really have guilt in your life that's fine too um, we often have guests who are like I don't feel guilt which is great because I feel a lot of guilt plenty of guilt for everybody um, <laughs> it's enough to go around <laughs> so yeah. uh, can you think of anything that might fit into that category um, I would say I've been like guiltily binge watching mm. Star Trek, which <laughs> oh yes, I know. So when I met my sweetie, which was like when was that? Like 1999. I didn't know the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars. Oh yeah, I was like, definitely in that same boat too. I didn't grow Shame up. Shame on me. <laughs> I just didn't grow Shame up out. like that. <laughs> And I've been like, sci-fi, who would ever do that? Especially boring sci-fi with like Mm -hmm. the weird cardboard sets and stuff. (laughs) And so I'm just recently um, been reading a lot of sci-fi. And so I'm opening my heart to like the... Mm. foundational sci-fi like rules and regulations Octavia Butler yeah yeah Yeah. I love Octavia Butler so I'm just trying I'm opening my heart but it is really boring and there's all these (laughs) weird like recalibration (laughs) of different phasers and whatever and then like they're like recalibrate the sensor what am I watching (laughs) so that's that's yeah. That's actually funny. Uh, like <laughs> last year, for some reason, I felt like I should, you know, get into because my grandma used to love that. So I would like, yeah. I went back to the old, the old Star episodes. Trek. Yeah. Because <laughs> even then I was like, wait, which one is these? Yeah. And it's the really old ones are like yeah. so corny. And also, like, you're kind of like, what is all this sub, like, sexist, race, like, yeah, racial comment? Yeah. Like, uh... We're talking about the frontier and AP US history. Oh, and yeah. I, I, we were talking about what are modern frontiers. And the kids said, deep ocean and deep space. <laughs> and I said, space, the final frontier. And they were like, what is your problem? Because they didn't know what I was talking about. I finally know so what funny. you're talking about. <laughs> it feels good when you're like, when you know. <laughs> Annie, what's your guilty face? 
craziest. Oh, mine. This is gonna. This is uh, okay. I don't feel <laughs> guilty about because they're unhealthy. I feel guilty because I, because I have been eating to the point of being like way too full lately, and it's because I've been making vegan milkshakes at home <laughs> after dinner. Like I'll eat dinner and then I'll be like, Hey, babe, you want to? Vegan milkshake. Let's get What's some like a vegan ma- milkshake. You just get some like vegan ice cream and vegan milk. So like <laughs> cashew ice cream is super good. So you get like some nice dark chocolate cashew ice cream, some cashew milk, and blend it up. And Annie's eyes are like lighting up right now. <laughs> I'm a little glazed over because I'm thinking I'm probably gonna have a milkshake later, and I'm yeah. really excited about it. But I've been drink. I'm just like, and I'm not talking like I don't feel guilty about the calories or the anything. I feel guilty about <laughs> that I've been eating so much that I'm like too full. And I'm like, that's just not. It doesn't feel good. Like I feel physically not good. I'm like, I need to. I need to lay off. <laughs> just I'm gonna go lay for off a walk the and then drink one. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go take a turn a little bit, although it is in the food category, and I'm gonna go high chews. Oh yeah. Um, they were more of a recent thing that I started eating the last few years, and I feel like they're right in that like, if you start eating them, then you can't mm-hmm. stop eating them. Yeah. And definitely, there's been a moment where I was like, oh, I'm just gonna have like three from this Costco bag, and then I'll. And the problem is, Costco started Costco selling started them, selling them, yeah. and I like justified buying them for like, oh when our Chinese exchange students were at our house and then yeah. all of a sudden I have a huge bag of high shoes. It's like 700 high like, shoes in that bag. like 20 of them gone. Like yeah. one time I looked over the couch and I was like, a how many did I just eat? And I had to yeah. That's so great. <laughs> they started um, so carrying my favorite vegan ramen at Costco and I'm like, it's mm-hmm. over. It's over. I'm just eating all the salt now. All, so. all just Costco. salt. I'm just going to eat just salt right in my mouth. Uh, last segment. Do your fudging homework. Interchangeable. White ladies! All right, Annie, what's your homework for today? What do you need of our um, listeners? Well, earlier in the episode, I mentioned One Teacher in Ten, and I found the author's name is Kevin Jennings. I recommend it. It's really good. I actually just lent it to a former student because they let me borrow their copy of um, It Gets Better. Um, like it gets better project, and so then I lent them my book One Teacher in Ten, and I've actually lent this book out to a ton of folks because it, for, especially for um, for people who are not um who are not in the queer community um that it, it's kind of a something you don't necessarily think about but um queer teachers have a unique experience in the education system and um some queer youth are really shut out of the education system because of things like bullying and harassment um and never have the opportunity to even think about Maybe I could be an educator or I could be someone who um, helps other students who struggled like I did. So I think it's really worth it's worth reading. Um, it's a completely different, you know, thinking about the experiences of queer teachers is a different lens than thinking about racial equity in schools. It's a different lens than thinking about like gender equity in schools and what that looks like and feels like and sounds like. But they also overlap. So um, just be aware of that. That's something that our students are dealing with and that um, your colleagues that one in 10 of your colleagues are queer and just keep that in mind it's important tomorrow any homework for folks could be action items something to read something to do something to think about um, something to be less basic and crappy mm-hmm. oh I would say go hang out at your public library and mm-hmm. go talk to the teen librarians and mm-hmm. just get to know them because they're some of the most awesome teachers like I just love them the youth librarians or <clears throat> at the local library I've learned a lot from them and they and also like I'm a tired mom teacher mm-hmm. and so YA is kind of my way through mm-hmm. like I just read through like so many YA books and I, I learn a ton um about romance no I'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> about vampires <laughs> yeah and right. dystopians wait what's your most recent one or one that you really enjoyed I just probably? read Dear Martin oh yeah um, That's so good. and I thought it was super good um, and like a really quick read, but like a super potent quick read. Yeah, nice. it's good. 
my recommendation is going to take a little bit of a dark turn. <laughs> so I recommend um, uh, well, by the time this comes out, it'll be like a few weeks out um, from when this kerfuffle was happening. But uh, recently there was a very uh, racist history, history teacher in Tacoma oh, yeah. that published some race, racist stuff about how we need to go back to having one common American culture and um, how diversity is divisive was actually the title of his piece. Mm-hmm. And a lot of educators and a lot of folks um, well, I should start with a number of folks were like, I don't understand what's wrong with his piece. He's just expressing his opinion. And then a lot of other folks were like, well, here's the problem. And so I think our conversation today around mm-hmm. like equity and what we think about around what is diversity and what does it mean yeah. to like be multilingual, multinational and just like multicultural and multi perspective right. oriented. That to me, it's really a good example of some why we need it, <laughs> why we need it for yeah. our teaching force, why we need it to, in our own personal lives, having people that are different from us um, yeah. that identify in different ways than we do and kind of expanding our own thinking. So there's been a lot of good conversations about that. And I highly recommend we'll link to a couple of these different things um, as well. Excellent. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank, Thank you, you so it's much been fun. for coming. Yeah. Bye. Bye. The Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is part of the Channel 253 Network. Listen to our other podcasts. Move to Tacoma. Nerd Farmer. Citizen Tacoma. Crossing Division. Flounder's B-Team. We Art Tacoma. And Taco Man. Welcome to the Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast. I'm uh, Hope. Uh, oh, I already messed up, and I didn't start. <laughs> I'm Hanny. Interchangeable White Ladies Podcast is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. We, we fly, fly Alaska. Alaska. Book your next flight on alaskaair.com. And please support Channel 253 with a monthly or annual membership at channel253.com. This is Channel 253.